Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. This year, Providence College is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first class of women students at the college. Since 1971, when the college became co-ed, the political science department has had many terrific women students, and our women graduates have gone on to distinguished careers in a wide variety of professions. Some have even pleased their political science professors immensely by going on to become political scientists themselves. Today, in recognition of PC's Year of the Women, I thought listeners would be interested in learning something about two of our relatively recent graduates who have garnered PhDs in political science and are now political science teachers and researchers. So joining me to discuss their paths from political science department at Providence College to becoming professional political scientists are Professor Laura Bucci, Providence College class of 2010, and Professor Kelly Branham-Smith, Providence College class of 2012. Laura Bucci is Assistant Professor of Political Science at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. She earned her PhD in Political Science from Indiana University in 2017. Kelly Branham-Smith is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Stetson University in DeLand, Florida. She earned her PhD in Political Science from Brown University in 2017. Professors Bucci and Smith, Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Laura. So, Kelly, you're joining us from Florida. I presume it's warm down there. Yes, it actually is a beautiful, like, 80-degree day here in Florida. (laughs) It's snowing here, so if that makes you feel, um, (laughs) it shouldn't be. It is. So, Laura, you're getting the touch of winter in Philadelphia like we are here in New England. It suddenly turned cold overnight after kind of an early spring here. It was very nice for, you know, last week and we've come close to 70 degree temperatures and and then all of a sudden today we were back in winter. So anyway, well, thanks so much for joining us here today. And we're going to talk about, uh, take, a, take a trip down memory lane for you to recollect your years at Providence College. And as, and as I said, I'd like to talk about how you went from Providence College studying political science to become political scientist. So let me start kind of at the very beginning. I'd be very interested in finding out when both of you first got interested in politics. When did you start thinking about politics and saying, hmm, that's something interesting. Kelly, you wanna start out with that? Sure, I would say probably I don't think I even realized it yet, but probably in high school, I was interested in politics. I always liked my social science classes the most. Um, And I think it was in high school when I started to pay a little bit more attention to uh, what was going on in the political world. Um, And I remember uh, vividly, my, my brother graduated from Notre Dame, and that was the year that President Obama was the commencement speaker. Um, and I remember that as kind of a really interesting uh, moment uh, where I became much more interested in politics. But I think really began with an interest in, in education and inequality. And I think that led me to focus on kind of the political side and the power side of, of how education operates in the United States. Um, uh, and I think that's how it, how it started. Well, that's very interesting, Kelly, because you've gone on to study education and, and inequalities. We'll we'll talk about that about that later. So, so I'm intrigued that that your your uh, professional interest was sparked when you were a high school student. Uh, that doesn't often happen, uh, Laura. I I presume that being a Rhode Islander uh, originally, uh, you just had to be interested in politics. I mean, so my I have a I have a really big family. My immediate family is very small, but my my um, my extended family. My grandfather is one of eleven. My my mom has, um, you know, close to ten <laughs> siblings. Right, so it's a it's a um, it's a lot. Um, so I think growing up in really big families 
um, politics was was interesting really early on. My parents are, uh, my mom especially, is a tremendous, like, she's a better citizen than I am. And I say that all the time um, where, you know, she's she's on her phone with her local representatives very frequently um, in a way that I have never been and probably will never be. Um, and so I think thinking about how politics works or how politics can work was something that was um of interest to me really early on. It's not what I went to college for originally. Um, because I don't know, I almost felt like it was it was uh just kind of in the background always. And so I was like, let's try something different. Um and I sort of came back to poli sci um after my freshman year, right? So I second semester freshman year, I was like, time to go back to basics, right? Let's go back to things I actually enjoy. Um yeah, there there have been some Bucci's in Rhode Island who have held political office. Right. Yeah, so a lot of them family. Yeah, not my family. Um, but but close enough, right? So it's it's um my my great grandfather was the the head of the Democratic Party in North Providence. Um so this is this is a, a while ago, but um so politics was always kind of close by. Um and it's it's always been of interest, right? It's a it's a way to kind of create change or or to extract kind of good things out of a society, right? It's a it's a way to build a, a future in a place. Um, and and Rhode Island is small enough that you can you can make a substantial difference with not that many people, which is a an interesting um, political arrangement. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about your decision to attend Providence College. Uh, Laura, I imagine for you, it was kind of the local school. You, you must have been acquainted with PC uh, from a very young age. So, so what, what led you to, to uh, uh, become a student here? I mean, so I don't, I think in applying to colleges, um, I was a local kid and I didn't have a ton of information in terms of where I wanted to go. Um, my association with PC is with PC basketball. And I know that's like not a great reason to pick where you're going to go to college, but it definitely weighed in the calculation um, in a way that was really exciting. I wanted somewhere smaller. I wanted somewhere that was um, close enough to home that I could be, be around family. Um I didn't want to travel to Narragansett. So it was a, um, so your eye sort of left, left the picture for me. Um, that sounds think, like a real Rhode Islander, Laura. Too uh, far. The, the, the 30 minute drive to URA was too much. It's too much. Uh, well, I lived, I, so, I mean, my parents' house is under two miles. I could do that commute in like about six minutes. Um, right. I live just up Smith street. It's not far. <laughs> Right. So that was like a real plus to PC for me. Okay. But Kelly, you, you grew up in Florida. So that's, in fact, I remember when I first saw your name in a class list, I said, oh, a student from Florida. We don't have very many of those. Yeah. I was the opposite of Lori. Or I went far away. Um, actually, a, fr a friend had mentioned to it to me. I had been looking for a school that was about Providence's size, like in the Florida 8,000 range. Um, here in Florida, we have a, a, some big universities and then some really smaller schools. Um, and so I wanted something more in the middle than that. And so that made me uh, look outside of Florida. Uh, so uh, my decision came down between PC and then a school in Boston, and I visited I visited both, and I found that the students at PC were just seemed a lot happier and a lot more excited to be at Providence College, and that really was the the deciding factor for me to choose PC. Super, it wasn't our basketball team. No, it wasn't because in Florida we're all about college football. So now, now I've been converted as a full-blown college basketball fan. But and Professor, for our listeners, Professor Smith is married to a PC grad, so I think you've been uh, following the NCAA run of Providence College. We have been, yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're we're hoping at the college that's going to recruit a lot of good students. 
that, that we got some national attention. So, okay. Uh, and you got to PC and you eventually decided to major in political science. So what was that about? How did you decide that you liked political science? Did you decide that right when you came or did you make the decision after taking some classes? Kelly, what about you? So I um, kind of accidentally became a political science major because I remember I was filling out the form online and I remember this vividly. And my mom was like, oh, you don't want to go into college undecided. You need to pick a major. And she said, why don't you do political science? You've always liked your social science classes. So I was like, okay, that's fine. So that's how I incidentally became a political science major. And I took my first class in, in the fall and I liked it, but I was toying with the idea of becoming a history major or doing a history political science double major. I wasn't sure kind of which path I wanted to go down. Um, and that all changed in the spring when I took Poly 102. And I just thought it was the coolest thing that the questions that I had about how the world worked, we could actually figure out whether uh, could find the answer to them and and that you could, you know, when people made statements, you could go and collect data and figure out if those statements were accurate or not. Um, and that uh, if I could interrupt, PolySci 102 is was called then empirical political analysis. Right. And I presume that either Professor Hyde or Carlson was your professor. Yeah, Hyde was my professor. Professor Hyde. OK, I had Hyde, too. And I, I think that was like for me foundational, right? Like that was the, I started in the natural sciences, which was, um, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't for me. Um, but what changed coming into poli sci was I liked that there was some, some substance to it, right? I liked that you could, you could do rigorous work and, and, and do it about ideas that were current and ongoing and, sort of all around you. And I really, I enjoyed that. Um, that class was like uh, really eye-opening and like life-changing for me in a, in a very direct way. Yeah, and Laura, what, so, so you initially were interested in natural sciences and what was your, your first poli-sci class? It was uh, whatever, 101 or 100 with um, Dr. Camerano. Um, politics, right? Yeah, it was wonderful. And it, it let me kind of go out in the world and think about who I was politically and see politics in a, a way that was sort of very approachable. Um, it's also a style of teaching that I respond really well to that, like, everyone is smart enough to do this, you just have to want to do it, right, which is, I think, how I've taken teaching going forward, right, that, that this is hard and rigorous and difficult, but you're capable and able to do things. So both of you were very much affected by Professor Hyde and his empirical political analysis, um, you know, where he really, you know, dig, digs into the, some data and you can really start analyzing data about politics. What were some other political science classes you found uh, particularly influential in, in, in your own uh, sort of development? particularly as, as you became, as, as you are now a professional political scientist? I would say um, two classes were particularly important to me. First was, was your public policy class because I study public policy now. So it gave me a really good foundation and I think it helped, helped me think of interesting research questions or just got me intrigued with public policy. Um, the other class that was really important was I, I took, I think it was called Ancients and Moderns with Dr. Battistoni. And I don't think, uh, I'm not a political theorist, uh, but it seemed that, that the other students in that class, um, there was just something about the dynamic and the intellectual curiosity in that class that I feel like everybody pushed each other to, to do better. And I felt really surrounded by top students when I took that class. And I think the the writing and the thinking that that class made me do really helped me be a better student and ask better questions and probably be a better writer as well. Laura? I think so. This is like very typical PC to answer this way, but second year Civ for me was, was a, a 
really important sort of, I think it gave me enough breath to really feel comfortable asking questions in a, um, in a, in an honest way. And I think it, it sort of helped me get the frame of reference with the history to really think about, um, bigger problems going forward. Uh, in particular, I always link back to the idea that like we were reading, I was in honor civ with you and, um, and Dr. Morgan and Dr. Hogan. Um, and I think that for me was, it's just a lot of ideas, like really big substantive ideas. Um, that was the first time I read the novel Germinal, which I think like hit a lot of what I needed it to in the moment. And so, like I said, I labor now and it's this kind of, uh, story of, of just struggle, um, in a way that like really humanized and motivated a lot of what I work on going forward. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Laura, because I remember discussing with my colleagues, Hogan and, and Morgan at the time about whether or not to assign German Al. And I, I was very interested in, in, in actually teaching that. So I'm glad that that had an impact and, and turned you into a labor scholar. <laughs> I mean, so I think like I wrote a whole dissertation, like unconnected to the idea of like Catholic social thought and then realized I wrote a deeply Catholic dissertation, um, right? Like it was not a thing I thought of consciously and then looked back, I was like, oh, that's exactly what you did. <laughs> okay, well, I'd like to hear more about that in a minute. So, so you mentioned, so that's interesting. You mentioned that Civ, uh, sort of played a role in you becoming a political scientist. Uh, Kelly, were there any courses outside the poli-sci department that, that were especially influential for you? I do think, Civ, I mean, I, there's just no way getting around how important Civ is. I, I mean, I think especially studying political science to have, as Laura mentioned, to have that breadth um, and that background moving forward and, and to have um, some awareness of where big ideas are and then where they came from and how we still see them today uh, in society. I think just having that background knowledge is just so important. And I have thought many times um, since I graduated how I would love to just go back and retake this all over again. Um, and especially because ever depending on the professor, right? You read a you read some different books than, than the other civ classes. And I sit I sit back and I go, oh, I would just love to like retake Civ again and again, probably. There's just so much, there's just so much content there that's so relevant today. Um, it would be wonderful. Well, Kelly, you should start a Civ program at Stetson. You could then teach Western Civ. Uh, that's why I yeah, taught it as a political scientist because I just loved reading stuff outside of you know, my discipline and interacting with faculty uh, in, in other departments and, and the like. So that's one of the nice things about a, a smaller college that can do, do that. Um, uh, actually, I was gonna get to this later, but, but uh, both of you teach at predominantly liberal arts colleges. Right. Uh, how big is Stetson, Kelly? And, and like, what, what is your class size there like? Uh, yeah. So Stetson's just a little bit smaller than PC. Um, we, we do have uh, a law school and a, and a music school. But where, where I am, it, the undergrads are a little bit less than PC. And our average class size is 20 to 25 or so, um, depending on, on what you're teaching. So a similar, a similar size to Providence. And uh, St. Thomas, Laura, is that bigger? Or? St. Joe's. St. Joe's, I'm sorry. Go Hawks. Um, oh. Right. So no, it's, uh, we're pretty comparable, right? So it's, you know, it's about 4,000 or so. Um, uh, my classes usually were capped at about 20. I teach intro to American government. So that's probably of the major, one of the biggest classes. That's about 30. I have a capstone right now. So it's, it's interesting to have a senior seminar for the first time. And that's, that has 13. Um, so it's, it's much smaller. Um, yeah. So when you were on the job market, were you actively, both of you seeking institutions like the ones you're at or, or it was just the luck of the job search? It'd be nice to say that I, you know, that 
that the market was wide open and we had our pick, but that, that doesn't seem to be what the job market looks like, but I am happy to end up at the kind of school I'm at. I think, um, it's an opportunity to genuinely get to know your students and to see them grow and improve um, in a way that I don't think would have been possible if I was teaching, you know, 400 kids a semester um, where it would be much harder. Yeah, I think I knew I wanted to be at a small place uh, similar to, to Providence College. I just, I knew that my experience there was so important and formative, um, uh, you know, going through my graduate education and and then trying to get a job. So it was definitely where I wanted to land. But as you know, there's, you, you don't necessarily have as many uh, uh, options um, in the job market these days. But I do remember vividly when I was going on the market, I think I went to lunch with you and uh, Dr. Hyde, and you both you both thought I was crazy wanting to be at a small school and go back to Florida uh, all in one go. And it did happen, um, surprise, surprisingly. Um, but yeah, I did. I think I, I knew that my my ability to have relationships with my professors and how that was so important in forming me professionally, I wanted to be able to do that um, in my career. And so I knew going to a huge school, I, I wouldn't be able or it would just be more difficult, uh, probably um, to 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 engage in that kind of mentorship I was interested in. Right. So, so that, you know, brings me back to a question I was going to ask before about how both of you decided to uh, go to grad school in, in political science. Uh, Kelly, you mentioned interactions with professors. I presume that was part of your decision, uh, interacting with those of us in the poli-sci department. Yeah, it was. So I, um, after empirical political analysis, Dr. Hyde asked me to be his research assistant. So then I was I was his research assistant for the next three years. And I got to walk, I got to work on a number of really cool projects with him. And so I think that allowed me A, to have, you know, quite a breadth of experiences working on research projects that I think students might not typically have. And then B, I kind of got to see, okay, this is what a professor kind of does um, in, in their you know, professional life. And that kind of convinced me that I wanted to, to continue studying political science, that I really, again, loved the fact that you could ask questions and go out and find, find the answers um, uh, about political life. And, and that's what really led me down the path to to go into graduate school. And Laura, what about you? What what led you? Yeah, so originally I had um, I had the kind of motivation that I think a lot of poli-sci students had, and I thought I was going to go to law school. I thought that was sort of the next logical step for me. After um, after poli-sci 102, I think it was, I think it was you and Dr. Hyde together that both of you were like, do you want to be a lawyer? <laughs> and I think it was that, that was the question. It was like, do you want to be a lawyer? And I was like, well, like maybe, I don't know. And they were like, well, that's a no then, <laughs> right? That this is a, this was the kind of conversation. I think being a professor wasn't something that I had in my cards until someone told me that I could do it, um, right? And so I had written my paper in, uh, in 102 was on same-sex marriage bans um, in the state of Ohio. And I think that became an independent study um, I presented it later at Northeastern Political Science Association. Um, and so it kind of like grew into the, a thing I was doing in, in other courses. Um, and it was always something that was like fun, right? It was a lot of like playing around and trying to figure out a puzzle um, in a way that was hard, but like just exciting. Um, and so for me, that was always the push forward of like, okay, well, this is, if this is something you like doing, then do this. Um, and that led me to grad school. Could you say a little something about your grad school experiences and, and how your work at PC was connected there? How prepared were you? What were some challenges that you, you might've faced in graduate school? I don't know if, um, Kelly, if you had this similar experience, but um, I think going straight from undergrad, I took a year in between, but I think going straight um, 
it puts a little bit of a chip on your shoulder in that you're like, everyone here is older and has a master's and like has a life, right? Like they have like a, you know, they have like a long-term partner and they have like stuff. Um, and at the point where I left, I was like, you know, I'm still a college kid, but I'm like, I'm gonna, it's undergrad take two. Um, and I think getting kind of settled into graduate school for me, um, took a second to, to feel confident and to feel comfortable. Um, I think I was prepared. I was writing very well. I was arguing, you know, consistently and concisely. It just, it was a moment for me of recognizing that and, and sort of seeing that, that I was ready. Um, and I think. Hmm? You went to Indiana university, which is I did. You know, both, both uh, Indiana and Brown are prestigious institutions with, I'm sure there were lots of other very, very good graduate students there. Definitely. And, and just sort of recognizing that you could hold your own and that you were more comfortable, I think, in writing in particular. Like I could write a paper that was good and, and, and strong um, pretty consistently, right? That, that I was used to writing longer papers than other people were used to writing. Um, and I think that is a testament to the department and to um, sort of liberal arts training in general. Um, but I think the transition for me was, um, it was a lot of similar stuff to what I had been doing, right? To make sure I was reading widely, to make sure I was outlining, to make sure I was thinking of my own questions um, and to coming to class sort of prepared to engage um, kind of seminar style. Um, yeah, Kelly, similar experience or? Yeah, I, I agree with Laura. I think I think adjusting the the confidence in graduate school. I I I went straight straight in from undergrad to graduate school, and I agree. It takes a second to get your um, feet under underneath you, um, and 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 realize that you are like should be there. Really, I felt I felt very uh, prepared methodologically uh, because my professors at PC all worked together with me to make sure that I had a breadth of experiences going forward. So when they knew that I wanted to go get my PhD, for example, you know, Dr. Hyde had me do uh, my senior research with Dr. Battistoni and I did interviews because I had been working all quantitative um, data with Dr. Hyde. And so, and I, and I remember Dr. Camerano let me do a kind of a weird project in his presidency class because there was something I was interested in and I would learn like a something new for graduate school. So that kind of mentorship across the department really helped me get a wide breadth of experiences going into graduate school, which made me feel um, a lot more comfortable. And I remember vividly when I was first writing my personal statement for graduate school, you know, I did my first draft and I sent it to Dr. Hyde and he had some comments and he sent it to you, Dr. Hudson. And you came in and you said, you're going about this all the wrong way, Kelly. You have to, you have to completely rewrite this because I guess, and I don't remember what the version was like. You don't remember this. I don't remember it. So. Okay. You said um, my, my personal statement read as if I was trying to like defend myself that I was prepared for graduate school, even coming from a small liberal arts institution. And you uh, challenged me to say, no, you have to find the things that this experience gave you that made you the most prepared for graduate school. And it made me completely flip my personal statement talking about how these, these experiences that are really only available at a school like Providence College in the smaller school was uh, made me a much better prepared graduate student than students at other universities. And so I do, I do think that that actually helped me going into graduate school with more confidence because it totally changed my mindset, um, especially going to Brown thinking, oh, I, should I really be here? You know, from that kind of change of, of perspective and writing my personal statement, it was like, oh yeah, I've had a lot of experiences, you know, that many other students haven't had that, that made me really well prepared and ready to go um, in graduate school. That's good. Uh, and so, and in graduate school, I suppose both of you had some uh, good mentorship there as well, a chance to uh, work in perhaps other research projects. Uh, I know, Laura, one of the things you did was you were an editorial assistant for Perspectives on Politics, a, a leading journal in political science. 
uh, edited at that time by uh, uh, Jeff Isaacs, right? So I was, um, my claim to, I was the uh, American Book Review assistant for a long time. Um, I worked on the article side for a while as well. Um, I'm still very proud of the um, the issue that gets, it gets called the Princeton study all of the time with Marty Gillins and Ben Page um, on uh, economic inequality and um, representation that I was working at Perspectives when that issue came out. Um, and it sort of became an all American issue in part because I had extra book reviews and we had a sort of lot of stuff in hand um, and thematically it all sort of worked. But I think mentorship at Indiana, Indiana was wonderful for me in a lot of ways. It's, it's far away from Providence, which is unfortunate, but I think getting away and sort of being in a different place in a new environment was really helpful for me. Um, it's a small enough program. So my cohort, I believe was 11, um, which there were two Americanists. And so it was nice to sort of be around um, a relatively small group of people that we could consistently see over time and just sort of kind of grow in, in knowledge, like with a group. Um, my advisor, my current, my, my graduate school advisor is retiring this year. Um, so we're headed back to Indiana in mid April. Um, in what is like set to be a very nostalgic moment, but I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. And that's Gerald, right? Yeah. Correct. So Jerry's retiring. So all of the, the request was that all of the kids would come home. So, so there's a, there's a, there's a lot of us. Um, and so the idea would be that, that all of the former grad students, I think the earliest is sort of like early nineties um, until I was the second to last in 2017. So we're all going to kind of come back. Kelly, you want to add anything about your experience? in? Yeah, we also, um, Brown was a smaller program as well. Uh, and I liked that environment um, a lot. I, I remember when I was trying to decide where to go, it was, you know, Dr. Battistoni who told me, he said, you know, the grad students don't have to get along for you to do well in graduate school, but he said it makes graduate school a lot easier. <laughs> the graduate students support each other. And he was right because I was in an environment where, you know, the, the, the students above me were giving me notes and helping me through the process. And I think that made it a lot easier. Um, I also had a, a wonderful mentor in graduate school, Susan Moffat um, and Wendy Schiller, who um, you know, worked really closely with me. And I think, I think my experience as a research assistant at PC really helped me because I was ready to be a research assistant in graduate school as well. And I, and I think that allowed me to develop, you know, good relationships, uh, with my mentors, you know, early on and then throughout my graduate education. You both are political scientists. That means you do research on politics. So I want to make sure we spend some time here uh, hearing about your research and uh, what, why you decided to study what you study. Uh, Laura, you already said it's because I assigned Germinal, Germinal to you. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure there were other factors. Uh, just but if you could just minors. <laughs> tell us a little bit about your research, how you got interested in your, your topic, and, and what contributions you think you've made uh, so far. Uh, just starting out in your careers, you've already made some contributions to our understanding of politics. Uh, so Laura, you want to follow up? Um, you're, you're a specialist in state policy and labor. Yeah, so I most of my work is on um, the consequences of declining unionization in the states. Um, so the basic argument of most of what I work on is that states have varying history of, of labor organizing or labor strength. Um, and that has consequences for the types of policies that are present in states. And it also has consequences for the degree to which people feel more or less connected to civic institutions, right? So the, um, the book manuscript is, is arguing essentially that, um, that declining labor union membership is bad for democracy because it moves people away from governmental institutions and economic security, right? That this is a, a, a real problem um, for society because it takes people out of um, secure life and it moves them towards more precarious sort of um, isolated existence. 
um, most of what my work has been on right now is um, dealing with questions of inequality, but also dealing with organized labor as a as an interest group more generally. So most recently, um, I have a paper on party networks and sort of how labor donates to individual party networks and whether or not it it sort of grants them greater influence within those parties. Um, it doesn't always, it basically can only work for Democrats and it doesn't work particularly well. Um, so that's sort of where my, my research has tended to go in terms of how I got to here. Um, I went to grad school thinking I wanted to study gender policy at the state level. Um, and, but I've always been sort of interested in questions of when policy changes, what happens to people? Like, what do people do? How is their life different than it was before? Um, and in 2012, uh, that's when Act 10 happened. That's where all of the sort of Midwestern labor protests started taking place. And I was in a class on economic inequality at that point in time. Um, and I sort of was just like, maybe people don't like labor unions. Like, is, is that a question? Um, and all of the answers I came up with were, no, they seem to like them just as much as they ever did, which leads to some other, like something else is taking place here that is not related to public opinion and not related to um, general support. And so that sort of, that like uh, outside event shifted kind of my trajectory away from um, gender politics more specifically and into labor policy. Yeah, so so the, the, the decline in labor, some people attribute to say, well, people just don't like, they don't think they need labor unions, they don't like labor unions. And you're saying that's not really true. There's, there's other factors at work. I mean, as far as I can tell, I collected all of the public opinion data I could get my hands on from the 70s forward. And the trend line is pretty flat, regardless of how you cut it. And it, it's it's positive for for middle and low income folks. It's it's less positive, but still higher than you would expect for higher income folks. Um, so I, I I created estimates for states over time by income group. And it's it's pretty consistent. There's not this steep trend down that you would suspect given the degree that policy has shifted. Yeah, and so it's really public policies are largely responsible. Is that your argument? My argument is that some there's some elite influence happening here, right? It's either a, a party goal or it's an outside interest group goal. It's not, it's not the general public pressuring for, for change. And even like you would maybe suspect that public opinion might follow policy and that doesn't seem to really happen either. Um, so it's kind of this thing that is happening absent public interaction. And Kelly, you said you, you got fascinated by education policy when you were in high school. I've been, uh, yeah, one of my big decisions was whether to study education policy from a policy perspective or a political science perspective. And I obviously went the political science uh, route and I think my interest has, has broadened, I think, since then, in that I'm, I'm really interested in how policies communicate to citizens and, and what citizens can take away from, from the policies that they have available to them. But rather than take the kind of political behavior approach, I, I'm, I'm really interested, that kind of led me into in, interested in, well, why do states have certain policies, right? Why? In the United States, if you live in one state, your four-year-old has free pre-K education and you live just across the border and you don't have that, uh, that policy available to you. So that got me really interested in just like, why do states have different policies? And that kind of led me down the path of policy diffusion. So looking at how policies spread across states. Um, and since then, I, I've, I hope I've made some, uh, some additions to, to understanding not only why states adopt them, but even if they've adopted the same policy, how does that look different uh, in implementation that you can on paper have access to the same policy, but based on implementation, it can be a different experience for you as a citizen as to whether you have access to the benefits that these policies, you know, guarantee. And, and from that, I got interested in, in, in policy learning. And so I really look at the kinds of different ways that uh, state officials learn from uh, one another and how that's incorporated into state policy. 
I, I'm thinking about uh, recent state policy actions around instruction on things like race and gender. Uh, Florida, where you live, Kelly, is a sort of one place where, where that's going on. Uh, any insights from your research about um, what's happening uh, as politicians are sort of mounting campaigns to, to, inf to, to influence uh, what's taught in schools uh, right now? Uh, is this, this current policy uh, debate that's going on in the country? Yeah, the things have been uh, interesting here in Florida, um, as they as they typically are. I actually teach Florida politics at, at Stetson, so it's always uh, always interesting um, to to teach that. We'll see. I mean, education policy has this is not the only time it's been contentious, right? School boards. It's not the only time that. Um, school board uh, meetings have been contentious, of, of course, with the, you know, threats and things that are going on are, are very concerning, but um, it's important to know, and I'm actually teaching education policy in, in Florida politics class tomorrow, but it's important to note, right, that, you know, the way that policies and policy areas develop or institutions develop over time is really important. So, education started at the local level and was built up over time. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that the real contention in education policy and politics happens, you know, at the local and the state level uh, because of that. Kelly, I've also noticed in looking at your CV that you've been doing some other policy research, that you're working on a paper on uh, automatic voter registration, uh, which also touches on kind of a hot button issue right now, the whole issue of voter suppression and access to the ballot. Uh, uh, how did you get interested in that topic and, and what, what have you found uh, so far in, in your work there? Yeah, so so that paper is uh, currently under review and I, I remit with um, one of my colleagues here at Stetson and a former student. Um, and uh, my colleague um, is an expert in, in elections uh, and election policy. And um, we became really interested because we realized, right, the, the national conversation has been all the states are trying to restrict voting, right? All these policies we're trying, voter ID policies, et cetera. But actually, over the past few decades, states have taken a number of approaches to make voting and registration easier. That's really been more of the trend. And states simultaneously have been adopting certain policies that make registration and voting easier at the same time as adopting policies that make it harder. Um, so we were really interested in examining, well, why do certain states have these kinds of, why are they taking these different approaches um, sometimes within the, their own state uh, to uh, election policy? Um, so we decided to use a policy diffusion lens to do that. And most of the election policy research, rightly so, is really concerned about how these policies affect registration and turnout rates. Um, but we were looking kind of more of, well, why do they have um, these certain policies? And what we found is kind of the, the, um, the, the kind of propensity to innovate um, helps states adopt more and more election policies. So kind of add these different policies together and look how it how it influences them. Um, surprisingly, um, sometimes uh, election policies that expand that make voting or registration easier if their neighbors have those policies, states are actually less likely to adopt them. Um, so it's a really interesting story, but we're, we're trying to contribute both to, you know, this election literature to, to introduce this diffusion lens, but also to uh, kind of and uh, policy diffusion itself that typically focuses on more kind of social policies, um, some anti-smoking policies, welfare policies, et cetera, um, by looking at policies that can actually, you know, reshape democracy uh, by determining who, who can vote or not. So, Laura, uh, when it comes to labor policy, um, you know, we often don't think about I think state level policies in that regard. I know, you know, when I, you know, teach about, you know, labor policy, if you think about the Wagner Act and federal policies and the impact of 
federal actions, the National Labor Relations Board on the ability of unions to organize and the like. Uh, but but you've you're, you've looked at the state level, so I'm I'm a little curious. Uh, it, it it's interesting that both of you are sort of working at the state level, uh, which is which is something that political scientists I think have ne neglected for a long time. Um, so, Lauren, could you say something about that? How, how does state policies affect the ability of people to like join a labor union? I think so. I think a lot of people tend to focus on national labor law um, as a as a sort of pathway, like towards increasing or decreasing sort of the rights of workers. I'm looking mostly at the state level, primarily because there has been some legislation that can make it harder or easier to join a union. So, uh, collective bargaining, bargaining limitations at the in the public sector or um, sort of right to work in the private sector, right? That that those types of pieces of legislation often go to state legislatures that are more or less amenable to hearing those types of bills. Um, and so I think um, the strength of organized labor within a place also is met with the variation in sort of state legislative capacity or ideology that I, for me is an interesting way in which sort of group strength combines with the types of policies a legislature was going to produce anyway, um, and produces something that may or may not be beneficial to workers in a place. So things, things like uh, minimum wage preemption or other kind of preemption laws that take place at the state level and affect sort of local, um, this is what happens in Pennsylvania, right? That, that Philadelphia would raise its minimum wage, but can't because the, because Pennsylvania has preempted the the minimum wage law. Um, other sort of policies that can make it more or less easy to, to organize. Um, they're not the most common, most people are looking at the national level or cross nationally. Um, but I do think you get some really rich variety when you sort of dig down into the states. And I think this is what Kelly probably likes about it too, right? The states are, um, I always say state politics is really weird, right? That there's 50 different options you went with and they were all different, right? You picked a different way to do it everywhere. Um, and so states are, are changing their actions and that has um, consequences for how people live. Well, it, it sounds like for both of you, the state level is where the action is gonna be for a while, that you're both gonna focus your research efforts there. Uh, so that's great. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to catch up with you on, on what you're doing. Uh, to kind of wind things up here today, uh, I'd like your reflections on what it's like to be a college professor. Uh, as, a, as a person, uh, I'd like to learn a little bit about sort of how, how that affects your, your life as a human being. Uh, uh, you both seem, you both are smiling. So I think you're happy as college professors. So. Uh, tell us something about that. I think for me, uh, I like the way my life looks, honestly. Like, I think I get to talk about big ideas, which is something that I've wanted to do. I like to see kind of light bulbs turn on uh, for students thinking about things that are complicated um, or things that they felt maybe a little uneasy about um, and start thinking about that in a really systematic way. This is, uh, for me... I've been at St. Joseph's is my fourth year. Um, so this graduating class is the first class that I've seen from start to finish. Um, and it's, it's like a very emotional moment for me <laughs> um, because people have come so far and um, there's been a lot of moments of people that didn't think they could do college or didn't think they knew how to write or didn't think they could produce assignments the way they, they wanted to um, and sort of seeing it pan out is really rewarding. Um, we had an admitted students day yesterday, um, which was a very warm, fuzzy day for all of us. But uh, I didn't realize quite how uh, personally I took what I was doing. <laughs> I like, I think I always sort of knew that I cared about what I was doing. Um, but I didn't realize quite how much until I was like, they were like, we're getting ready to say goodbye. And I was like, oh no. Um, and so it was a, a very heartfelt moment, but I like being able to do that. And I think going to graduate school 
for me was personally very rewarding. It broke me out of my comfort zone. I met my spouse there. It was a, you know, a wonderful sort of life. It still is. Super. Thanks. Kelly? Yeah, I think um, I'm also in my fourth year and I feel like, I don't know if Laura agrees with this, we've, we've maybe had an atypical uh, experience as a tenure track professor because just uh, two years in, we got hit with the pandemic and went to online uh, learning for a little bit. I don't, I don't know how things were at, at St. Joe's. So I You're think, incredibly uh, nimble is what I always say in my statement. Right. I'm so nimble. Um. That's right. <laughs> And maybe, you know, maybe it was a good thing that we were so uh, soon out of graduate school because we were still trying to figure things out. So what's, you know, what's changing things up really to us? We weren't really set in our ways maybe um, just yet. But, I, you know, I've had a great experience uh, so far uh, being a professor. I think I teach our version of empirical political analysis here at Stetson. And it's just so great to get to teach the class that was so important for me that that really kind of turned a light bulb on for me and so I hope I, I do that with at least um, some of my some of my students and it's really uh, wonderful at, at Stetson all seniors have to do a senior research project so I'm teaching that class this year too so as Laura mentioned I'm I'm with the seniors who I had as freshmen and seeing the culmination of their work in their final research project is it's really rewarding, and and I also uh, a little caught off guard with uh, you know kind of how emotional it is having your first class um, graduate. Uh, but I think it's it's really rewarding. I uh, I'm so fortunate to be in a department that's incredibly collegial and supportive, um, and the students are excited and and ready to to learn. And so I get to spend my days you know reading and and getting to ask super cool research questions. And, and I think it's a lot of fun. Great. Well, thanks so much to, to both of you. I've really enjoyed uh, seeing your, your uh, bright faces once again uh, here on Zoom. Uh, and it's great to talk with, with you. And uh, I, I think uh, your experience uh, is a very, will be very enlightening to some of our listeners about how one sort of becomes a political scientist and and the like. So, so I appreciate very much for being with us today and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, sometime when you're back here visiting in, in, in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. And thanks uh, so much to uh, Chris Judge of the Marketing Communications Department of Providence College uh, for editing this podcast. And thanks to all our listeners for listening and please tell four friends about Beyond Your News Feed.